Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Uh, My name is Brandon Freemian. I am the equipping pastor here at the church. So today we are uh, launching into a new sermon series, as Elijah mentioned earlier. We're calling it Reconciled, Moving from Division to Unity. So throughout this entire year, uh, we've kind of been pursuing this theme of how do we go about promoting unity and love within the church in the midst of diversity? And I think you can take one look around this room and understand why that would be important for our church to pursue that end of how do we love each other well, how do we stay unified in the midst of God having brought wonderfully all these different people from all sorts of different backgrounds together into one body. And in some of our previous sermon series, we've laid some foundational pieces. We looked at John 17, where in Jesus' farewell address, he spoke to unity. In fact, in his prayer to the Father, he prays that they would be one, even as I and the Father am one. One, setting a crazy high bar for what unity is supposed to be, and also giving us this example where we can look at how Jesus relates to the Father and understand more about what unity is supposed to look like. And we also did a sermon series through Acts, and you'll remember in Acts 2, after the Holy Spirit had come and you had people from all over the place coming together and and hearing Peter's message in their own language being pricked to the heart and this, this new community forming. And at the end of Acts 2, we have this beautiful picture of unity where the church is together pursuing the apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship and and taking care of all the needs among them. Now, we want to continue to build on those foundations. And there's something that we haven't really addressed too much. We've hinted at it here and there, but... We haven't talked in a very direct way about what are the things that divide us. What are the sin patterns that could threaten our unity as a church? And in particular, in these areas where we are different, where we have this diversity, what are the sin patterns that can exist there that can pull us apart? And so during this sermon series, we want to confront these things pretty head on. And so we're going to talk about racism and ethnocentrism. We're going to talk about sexism. We're going to talk about generational conflict, and we're going to talk about class warfare. And these are topics that there's a lot of dialogue around in the wider culture. So our goal is going to be to to look at what does the Bible have to say on these things? Why are they displeasing to God, and how do they threaten to divide the church, and how does the gospel answer those things? And it's interesting that, that culturally we are, we, there's a lot of talk about the fact that we're kind of moving into a post-Christian culture, but we are very, very much a culture that is haunted by Christianity in the sense that there is this deep, still this sense of, of morality, of there being right and wrong, of there being just and unjust And although those definitions and what exactly is considered right or wrong or just and unjust may have differed greatly from what we actually see in the scriptures, nonetheless, there's still that deep sense of that just and unjust right and wrong in the culture. 
But what I also think is striking is that while it is, the culture is perhaps haunted by Christianity's morality, it has lost largely Christianity's hope in the gospel. And so for the second half of this sermon series, after we've looked at some of these really hard issues, we're going to spend also some extended time looking at how does the gospel call us to reconciliation and this process of walking through lament and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, both on an individual and a corporate level. So that's where we're going. So everyone take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Today, my goal is to pave the way a little bit for these upcoming uh, talks about some of these major sin areas, because one of the things that is true of all of these things, racism, classism, all of that, is that they have an individual component, but there's also very often a large corporate component to these things. There's a corporate sin element to this. And so what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about corporate sin, because again, this is an area where there's actually a lot of dialogue in it about culturally about this idea of corporate sin. They don't necessarily call it that, but corporate culpability. And I would say culturally, there's sort of two big extremes. You could probably come up with more, but kind of two of the ones that I see. One is the idea that my culpability, my guilt, is defined by my category. So, for instance, I am what is known as a a wasp. I am a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It's it's even worse than that. I am waspier. I am a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, ideological evangelical reformed. And I'm a man, but I couldn't figure out how to work that into the acronym. (laughs) Right? And in this understanding, by those categories, I am pretty near the top in terms of my culpability for kind of injustice and suffering that's taking place in our culture. Right? So in this understanding of corporate sin, my categories, you can kind of do the same for yourself. You can think about which categories you're in, and that kind of gives you a sense of how culpable you're being held by the culture for our current condition, however you want to define that. That's sort of one extreme of corporate sin. On the other side, you have almost a complete denial that there's any such thing as corporate sin, right? The only thing I can be held responsible is for what I have done, what I have said, what I have thought. You cannot hold me responsible for anything, no matter what part of a group I'm part of, anything like that. It's just about me and what I've done. It's very individualistic and also is typically coupled with a, and I didn't do anything, right? And you can probably see these two extremes yelling at each other quite a bit within the culture right now. So what I want to do is sort of, okay, what then does the Bible have to say about this? What does it have to say about corporate sin? Understanding these two extremes are kind of trying to teach us something about corporate sin. Let's look at what the scriptures have to say. To do that, um, I want to look at three churches. There's a lot of examples in the Bible of corporate sin, corporate repentance, particularly Old Testament, but I wanted to go and find some New Testament examples, and specifically within churches. And there is this wonderful section in Revelation 2 and 3 where we get to see this put on display. And you know if we're going to Revelation, it's about to get real, right? But Revelation 2 and 3 is this interesting section of Scripture where, you know, a lot of Revelation is known for, like, okay, maybe end time stuff and 
lots of fire and brimstone. But in, in Revelation 2 and 3, you have John speaking prophetically to the churches of his day. There are these seven churches who were kind of the primary churches um, in his region, and he, he speaks to them and, and it, on behalf of God. It talks about that it's going to be basically on behalf of the Spirit, and, and it's going to follow this, this similar pattern where, where God's going to, one, often give a little bit of great Christology about who he is, uh, and then what he sees in them that he's, he finds good and beautiful, and then also what does he see in them that needs some work. Um, and, and we are going to start with the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And this one's one where there's not a whole lot of good to say. So let's start there. I'm going to read this. Uh, this is Revelation 3, if you have your Bibles, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I'm going to pause right there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that verse. But there's some really good stuff there about Jesus, so something to look at at your own time. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salved to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so before we get into the church of Laodicea, I want to lay a little bit of just, you know, as, as it says in the Sound of Music, start in the very beginning, it's the very best place to start. So what exactly is sin? If we're going to be talking about corporate sin, spending five weeks on this stuff, what is it? Well, I think 1 John 3 through 4 gives us a great definition. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So fundamentally, when we talk about sin, sin is a violation of the law of God. And that's not just about the written law. It's also in the New Testament talks about violating conscience, violating the work of the Spirit in us. And all of it sort of big picture ties back to what Jesus talked about of the two great commandments, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, your mind and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that all of the law and the prophets end up feeding back to those things. So sin is always a violation of God's law. And because of that, it is fundamentally first against God and only second against our neighbor. And I think that's going to be an important thing to keep in mind as we're looking at these because very often when we're looking at sins like racism and sexism and classism, that it can very easily just become about me and the other person and the, the conflict we're having and ignore the fact that, wait a minute, there's some rupturing in our relationship with God that's taking place here too. But fundamentally, sin is about rebellion against God by violating his law. 
And it's not just about what we do, it can also be about what we don't do. So for instance, in James 4 through 17, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James is pointing out, hey, if there's something you know that's good that you should be doing and you fail to do it, that also is a violation of God's intentions and his law, and that is also sin. And that's why for a long time, sloth in the church was considered one of the seven deadly sins, much to the chagrin of all the couch potatoes in the world. Now, with that, what then is corporate sin? Well, here at the church of Laodicea, I think we have an interesting case study in that. Now, again, this is a church that that God does not have a lot of good to say about. In fact, he says, I'm getting ready to spit you out of my mouth. And why? He says they've gotten lukewarm. They are neither hot nor are they cold. And kind of the, the picture that I get is, like, have you ever had a water bottle like one of those plastic water bottles that maybe has been sitting out in the sun a little bit, right? So it's got that like little plasticky flavor to it and you taste it and it's not cold, it's not hot, it's not even room temperature. It's like this weird in-between and it's just nasty. And God says, y'all are like that. You're not hot towards me. You don't have that, that passion, that, that, that ardor that you used to have. There's no... There's no like longing there for me, like passionate about the things that I care about. Nor are you cold, right? You're not just blowing me off. You're just kind of meh. And why? Why are they meh? Well, he says that they've, they've prospered, they're wealthy, and they no longer recognize that they need anything. He says, you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now just a basic observation here. God is calling them to repentance, but he's not calling out individuals. He's not speaking to a you singular, he's speaking to a them. He's speaking to a corporate body. Very simple, but this is the heart of corporate sin is that God is speaking to a group and there's something that has happened to this group. Like, because the sin is not just one or two people, but the sin of of their hearts being turned away from the things of God and just becoming kind of dull in, in their passion for God and their wealth sort of taking over their hearts and their minds and being what's governing, that is not just a few individuals. It has become pervasive. And I think there we have a sense of what corporate sin is. And I wanna use this as a working definition. The corporate sin is when sin becomes pervasive, normalized, and built into the way of life for a community. So again, it's when sin becomes pervasive, normalized, and built into the way of life for a community. And very often when this happens, the community becomes desensitized to it and blind to it. And that's exactly what we see happening here, right? He says, you guys think you're prosperous, you think you're well off, you think you're the blessed ones, And you do not realize that you are actually poor. You are actually pitiable. You are actually not anywhere close to where you think you are. They have have totally lost sight of the fact that this sin has become so pervasive in their community. 
but God loves them. And the way he demonstrates that love is he doesn't let them just sit in it. He sends John as the prophet here and he tells them, he says, I discipline those I love. And this is something that I I love that God does is he doesn't just let us sit in our sin, either individually or corporately. Like he confronts us with it. And that act of, of discipline, that act of calling us to repentance is an act of love. And God does that individually and we see it here in the church of Laodicea. He's doing it corporately. So this is our first church, Laodicea. And the very basic point is that this is what corporate sin is and what it looks like when it takes root. It's when it becomes pervasive, normalized, and built into the very way of life of a community. So let's look at our second church. I'm not gonna read this whole section, but we are, I'm gonna try and pronounce this right. We're gonna talk about the church of Thyatira. We're gonna go with that. This is in Revelation 2, 19 through 21. I'm gonna read a section of this. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay, so here... God actually has some positive to say about the church at Thyatira, right? He, he says that he knows their works, that they have faith and love and service and patient endurance. But he says, I hold something against you. And notice what the thing he holds against them. So there is evidently a, a person, they call her Jezebel. We don't know whether this is the actual person and her name, or whether she is representative of a group of teachers and this is just kind of a way of kind of calling that out. We don't totally know what's happening here, but there is this false prophet within the community who's teaching things that are leading people into sexual immorality and violating their conscience through eating food sacrificed to an idol. But note, here he's not saying to the church, You are doing that. What is it that he lays at their door? He says, you are tolerating it. You are tolerating this happening. Now, this is interesting because remember what we talked about earlier about that, that James passage where sin can both be about action and inaction? His accusation here against the church is not one of action, it's one of inaction. You are letting this happen. You're not doing anything about it. So there's, there's a, I think this is a beautiful example of where corporate sin doesn't look like the, the community's doing something. It's about the, the, what the community isn't doing. And I think very often in the case when there is corporate sin present, there is going to be some amount that is the action, but there is also a certain amount of the inaction. And very often it looks like there's a certain amount of the, we're just tolerating this. When Tim Keller, uh, he did a sermon on 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 corporate sin, and he used an example that I thought was really powerful of how this tends to look, which is looking back at a horrific corporate sin, which was the Holocaust, right? And if if you think back to that historic moment, right, you had the people at the top, or the people who were doing it, they knew what they were doing, it, they were trying to do it, and they were executing this evil because it's what they wanted to do. These are the people that got tried for war crimes afterwards, 
But you also had a second set of people. The people who knew what was going on and tolerated it. And there was even a third group of people, people who kind of, sort of, maybe heard something about it, but decided they just didn't want to know, which is another form of tolerating it. And that allowed for the corporate sin to persist, both the doing of it and the tolerating of it, both the action and the inaction were a part of the way that that corporate sin was allowed to be pervasive, normalized, and built into the way of life for the community. I think it's striking you see that playing out here in the churches of Revelation. All right, let's go to our third church, the church at Sardis. This is Revelations 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Well, this is another one where God doesn't have a lot of good to say. He says, you think you're alive and you're actually dying. Again, he doesn't give a whole lot actually here about what is the sin, what is the activities that the church are doing that are problematic. Just in general, he says, you think you're alive, but you are dying and you need to wake up. But what I find interesting about this is in verse four. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. This is remarkable to me that in the midst of calling out corporate sin, he nonetheless also speaks to certain individuals that he says, but there's some of you that are continuing to walk in my ways. There are some of you that are continuing to walk in righteousness despite the pervasiveness of whatever is going on. And I think that is an important corollary to everything we've talked about so far. Yes, corporate sin is when it's happening in a body and it's pervasive. And yes, that can be action and inaction, but it is still also the case that even within corporate sin taking place, that individuals can still walk in God's ways, in righteousness. That corporate sin somehow does not overrule personal action and personal accountability and our personal seeking of God. And I think that is an important because of the extremes we talked about earlier. Like, hopefully now, when you think about the extreme of there is no corporate sin, you could make a biblical case for why that's not true. But at the same time, when you think about this idea of that is just what categories I'm part of, I think the Bible would also critique that, that corporate sin does not overrule personal accountability and action. So these are the three things 
that I wanted to sort of lay a foundation for for the coming weeks where we're going to talk about these hard issues. I got, I got the easy job, right? So this is, I didn't have to do the controversial stuff. But these three things, corporate sin, what it is when sin becomes pervasive, normalized, and built into the way of life for a community. Two, that corporate sin can involve both action and inaction within the community. And three, that even in the midst of all of that, it is still possible for individuals to live righteously even in the midst of corporate sin. There is still personal accountability. So I wanted to talk a little bit just about the next couple of weeks because we are gonna be talking about some very heavy topics and topics which, frankly, as a congregation, we have a lot of different views on and understandings of and different experiences with. You can see here the current plan uh, for our sermon series. There's a couple of them we may have to move around a little bit because of people's schedules, but that's the plan right now. But as we approach this, I want to just call you all to grace with one another and also grace for those that will be preaching. Not grace without accountability, but just recognizing that these are are hard topics that are a challenge to stand up and preach about and they're also gonna be hard to have conversations about. So as you go into your community groups or or your, your after Sunday lunch conversations, things like that, I just want to invite you to an extra level of grace and listening and and pursuing in the midst of those conversations love and unity and understanding. And I think if we do that, that us looking at these, these issues has the potential to really be something that is deeply unifying for us as a body. And I also want to invite you to approach these topics from a position of hope and of gospel-centeredness, right? These are heavy topics, but we do not approach them from despair. We approach them with hope because we know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We approach it with hope because we have the Spirit who is going to be doing the work of showing us what is true and and bringing up those things in our community that we may need to address. Uh, We have hope because we have a God who is in the business of pursuing reconciliation and who we can turn to when things get hard. A God who, even if we are faithless, remains faithful. A God who loves us so much that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross to deal with the sins that we're gonna be talking about. We are, uh, we're getting ready to take communion together. And I think this is such a, a beautiful picture of corporate forgiveness, Right? We are not just taking this individually, we are taking it as a body with a reminder of the fact that when God came and he sent his son and he saved us, he didn't just save us individually, he saved us as a body. And that he will do the work of both working forgiveness in us and also working unity in our body. So I want to, as you are taking of the bread and the wine to dwell on that salvation that is not just for you individually, but something that he has worked in us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for just these examples in in your word 
of imperfect churches. Churches that very often had things that you loved about them, but also, God, things that needed work. Um, and, and so I pray, God, that in the coming weeks, as, as we as a body are, are desiring to, to grow in our understanding of the things that could divide us, to, to confront them if needed, but also just to be protected from them, God, we need your help in this. I pray for grace in our conversations with one another. I pray for wisdom for those that will be preaching. Uh, and I pray, God, that you would use um, this sermon series to grow us towards reconciliation with one another to greater unity through this. Lord, we need you to do this. We cannot do it of our own power and volition. We love you and give you all the praise and the glory in your name. Amen.